Welcome to the Mentium Matters podcast, where we talk about leadership, life, and the transformative power of mentoring. This is Solvay Brown, and today I am thrilled to have Heather Welpley as my guest. Heather led Mentium's November Business Education webinar on imposter syndrome, which had a tremendous response from attendees. Heather was kind enough to follow up the webinar by being a guest on today's podcast. Heather asked webinar participants to post questions that they would like her to cover in more depth on today's episode. The questions were fantastic, and I am so excited to hear Heather's responses. Before we begin our conversation, I would like to give you some background information on Heather. Heather Welpley is a speaker and the author of the award-winning book, The Overachiever's Guide to Breaking the Rules, How to Let Go of Perfect and Live Your Truth. She is also the host of the podcast, Create Your Own Rules for Life. Heather has led events on imposter syndrome and creating your own rules for success with thousands of people at different companies and conferences around the globe. Prior to owning her own business, Heather worked at Cargill and Ameriprise in a wide variety of leadership development, human resources, and change management roles across the U.S., Latin America, and Australia. Heather lives in Colorado, where she enjoys spending time hiking and exploring as much as possible. Welcome, Heather. I am delighted to have you as a guest today. Thank you, Solvay. I'm so excited to be here as well and get to dive in even deeper into this topic, especially since there were so many good questions and we did not have time to answer them during the business education webinar. (laughs) I know it was fantastic. But before we get to the questions, Heather, for those people tuning in that weren't able to listen to your business education webinar on imposter syndrome, could you please give us a brief overview of imposter syndrome? Absolutely. So to a certain degree, the definition, the name says a lot of it, the imposter syndrome. So it is feeling like an imposter or like a fraud, even though you are successful, qualified, ready, you have good experiences. And that mismatch between perception and reality is really the crux of imposter syndrome. It's not about trying to think that you're good at everything, but it's really this mismatch of where you feel like your skills, qualifications, and experiences are lower or worse or less than they actually are in reality. Now, for a lot of people, they feel this way really situationally. So it's not an everyday occurrence, but that mismatch of feeling like, oh, I don't belong here. I don't know enough to be here. I'm not an expert enough to be here. Other people in the room are smarter than me, shows up in certain situations, but not every day. Other people, though, really do experience this every day. I've had people tell me, Heather, every single day on my way to work, I feel like today is going to be the day they realize I have no idea what I'm doing, that I've just been fooling everyone every single day of my career up until this point. And they're going to finally realize that they've I've just been pulling a wool over their eyes and they're going to tap me on the shoulder and escort me out the door. So know that if you're listening, that really anywhere along that spectrum is normal. Like we, most of us do experience imposter syndrome at least 70%, and most rates are higher than that. And so everyone experiences it, or almost everyone experiences it. And finally, I just want to point out, it's not actually a syndrome. It really is. You'll hear me hopefully say the word experience imposter syndrome as opposed to have imposter syndrome. And it's such a slight differentiation, but I think it's an important one that this is something that can come and go. It's not a diagnosis. It's not an actual syndrome. 
It's also called the imposter complex or the imposter phenomenon, which are probably more accurate, but I think especially imposter phenomenon is really hard to say. <laughs> so yeah, <I> think <laughs> imposter syndrome just rolls off the tongue well, and that seems to have what has stuck. And so those are those basics of really, you know, those inner critic thoughts in your head that then show up in reality of, I don't know enough to be here. I'm not ready. I'm too old or I'm too young, even though you are actually qualified. I don't belong here. I have to work harder than everyone in the room. They chose the wrong person. I just got lucky. I haven't earned this. All of those thoughts really go under the bucket of imposter syndrome. So if you're experiencing some of those thoughts, you're likely experiencing some imposter syndrome. Yes. Thank you so much for that great overview. One of the many things I love about your work is that you really normalize this for people and made it okay to talk about. And I was just so impressed with the chat and the webinar of how people were saying, oh my goodness, I, th these are the things that go through my mind. And it was just such a great feeling to see this whole community of people where everyone has experienced it at some point. Absolutely. Um, and this, yeah. I'll just tell you, I speak on imposter syndrome probably on average two to three times a month, probably twice a month. And this happens every single time. It doesn't matter the company. It doesn't matter the context. It doesn't matter whether people are corporate employees or whether they're entrepreneurs, whether they work for a small company, a large company. It is pervasive. And other cultures, not just American culture, multiple cultures across the world is so common that everyone is experiencing this, but we're not typically talking about it. We're not saying, gee, I feel like a total fraud. I don't feel like I, I, I feel like I'm fooling everyone that I don't actually belong here. I haven't earned my spot here. We're not really talking about that. And so people feel like they're alone in this type of self-doubt, but you're really not alone at all. Yeah. I think that's just been great to see people's responses to that and that feeling like, oh, I am not alone. I am not really an imposter. I'm, I think that just has been just a fantastic mission of your work. So now we're going to get to the webinar. Thank you to everyone who posted a question and everyone who liked the question that someone else posted. I am going to ask Heather the top four questions from the webinar chat. Okay, Heather, the question that received the most thumbs up responses in the chat was, how do you switch from proving your competence by overworking to setting healthy boundaries? Yeah, it's such a good question. And it doesn't surprise me at all that a boundaries question came up in here. First of all, I want to say that in the webinar, we talked about how people tend to respond in one of two or sometimes both ways to the uh, to experiencing imposter syndrome. So some people tend to hold back from opportunities. They don't go for that next job. They don't raise their hand and share the idea. They don't challenge the things that they're not doing. They're still working very hard and probably still have some challenges with boundaries as well, but they're not going for the thing. And then the group that I tend to fall into is like, I say yes, but then overwork to prove myself. So I think this is where that question came up around. Okay. If you, especially if you're in that overworking, like I I'm in this role, I'm here or I'm on this project, but I feel like I have to work harder than I probably do in reality because I feel like I'm not smart enough, or I just got lucky, or I don't know enough to be here. I don't have enough experience to be here. So I think that's where this question came from. And it's so good. And I think question two things came up for me as I was reflecting on this question is one is one is beliefs. And then the other side is practical, tangible steps, because part of setting poor boundaries is imposter syndrome. It's not all of it though. <laughs> and so there's lots of reasons that we might set 
have a hard time setting boundaries, some of which just have to do with external demands and cultural expectations, and which are very common, particularly here in the United States of we should always be doing more. We should always be working harder. Your plate is always overfilling. So I don't want anyone to fully take this on as their own, like it's all your fault if you have a hard time setting boundaries. I also believe there's things we can do about it as individuals, but I want people to hear loud and clear. There's a lot of external pressure that's coming in that not related to imposter syndrome at all. But then I think this piece around beliefs is related to what I was just talking about of asking yourself, like, why is it so hard for you to set boundaries? And just with total curiosity and compassion, is it because of imposter syndrome? Is it because you're connecting your worth to achievement, which was my story? And that's really what my entire book is about is learning to disconnect my worth from achievement. Is it because you feel like you have to work really hard in order to have any kind of success? So many, there's so many different things. Do you feel really guilty when you say no or set boundaries so much so that it's almost feels easier in the moment to just say yes, even though you might resent it later. So really diving deeper into your own personal beliefs around why it's so hard to set boundaries. Imposter syndrome being one of those reasons that it is hard to set boundaries. And then, because I think if you don't do that side of it, any sort of practical, tangible steps are going to be, they're not going to be as effective because really our underlying beliefs are driving so many of our actions and decisions. But then once you get to have some clarity around there, I think some pieces around boundaries, I frequently speak on managing burnout and boundaries, and it's really important to know the actual tangible steps as well. And one thing I think we don't often talk about when you read articles about boundaries or how to set boundaries is knowing what is most important. You have to know what is most important. Otherwise, you don't know what to set boundaries on. And not everything can be the most important, <laughs> which is the other important thing. And right. we don't really get that message either. Most messages that we get are like, everything's important and you have to do it all. And we just can't. We're not we can't do everything. And this is, I'm thinking life as a whole work and the rest of our lives, we can't do everything. And so getting to know what's most important. And sometimes you have to ask questions to know what's most important, or even to know what's important in the moment. I've had people who've really changed their entire stress level and an activity level at work, just by asking the question, can you tell me how important that is? Or can you tell me when that's actually due or what's dependent, who else or what other work is dependent on me getting this done? And simply asking those questions, oh, it doesn't have to be done in the next two hours. It just needs to be done in the next three days. That means I can take a breath. That means I can figure out the best time to do that. And so that can even be, a, that is also a part of setting boundaries, just asking questions, then communicating those boundaries, telling people what is and isn't okay with you, which I realize is Easier said than done. And we could probably have a whole other podcast episode just on that part Definitely. of it. And then really holding to those boundaries. So you will likely get pushback. Having said that, whenever I have experimented with setting boundaries, it has always been less of a big deal in real life than what it feels like in my head. Like people care less about saying, you saying no, you saying not no, you renegotiating something 95% of the time, they care less than what I think they're going to care of what the that inner dot mile long is going in my head. And so keeping that in mind, I think makes it a little bit easier to experiment as well. That is a really good distinction, because I think it's your perception of how people are going to react, which what kind of drives it. And so I love those practical ideas for just getting reflecting on what is the real 
root cause of it, prioritizing what's important, getting clarification from people, and then just trying it out, communicating, practicing, and love that knowing that it's not as big a deal to other people around you as you think it might be. So the next most popular question was, what if your inner critic is being fueled by external perfectionists? How do you help yourself not falling into feeling not good enough? Yeah, this is a great question because I feel like there's both the internal perfectionism and the external perfectionist that this person was calling out, which is such a a great thing because yes, people can put their perfectionism onto you. (laughs) Absolutely. It's a very real thing. Anyone who's ever had a micromanager has probably experienced a manager who is also a perfectionist, sending everything, every little detail to be perfect. I think so many of the things reminding yourself of your own worth and treating both yourself and that person with compassion to the best of your ability, because they're probably, we don't, we never know what's going on inside someone's head. Absolutely. We do not know. Likely they have some looping of their own going around in their head and some inner critic telling them, or they're getting pressure from above or whatever the case may be, which doesn't mean it's okay, but having some compassion for that and for yourself in the process, I think is always helpful really compassion, self-compassion and others' compassion is one of the major antidotes to perfectionism in general, because the perfectionism is we're so hard on ourselves and we set these unrealistic, ridiculously unrealistic expectations that we can't live up to. And then therefore that inner critic comes in telling you, you should be doing more. You're not good enough. And so I'm talking in the first person here of how that comes in itself, but it can also be ascribed to other people as well. And so I think reminding yourself of your own worth, that your worth is not dependent on this person's feedback. Also, and we might bring this up a little bit later as well, but I always keep in mind, and I heard this first in Tara Moore's book, Playing Big. So I always want to credit her because it's been a really life-changing realization for me, which is that all feedback, praise, criticism, neutral feedback, any kind of feedback that you get is always coming from that person's perspective, which doesn't make it right or wrong. It just means it's coming from their perspective and their perspective is always subjective also. So one person might tell you that they love your work and another person might shred the exact same work to bits and be giving you tons of of constructive feedback or just downright criticism in the process of that. And it's because they're coming from a different perspective, different experiences, different expectations of themselves, what expectations they're being given by other people. And so it's always helpful, I think, to take that step back and be like, what is this, what is this feedback saying about them and their perspective? And then what is helpful for me in this feedback? What is helpful? What do I need to follow? What's helpful for me? And what do I need to throw out the window? And really taking yourself, if this is hard for you, even writing it down, writing down your responses to that can make it just clearer about where is this coming from them? What's really ascribed to you? What's helpful? And what do you need to throw out the window? Oh, yeah, that is really helpful. That gets to that next question of how you can take feedback as feedback and not reinforcement of imposter syndrome. And I just love that, you know, that it's coming from someone else's perspective, that reminder that it's subjective, it's not objective, and that it's up to you to figure out, okay, what can I learn from this? What's important? What do I want to throw out? Oh, that is great. Do you have any further ideas on how to take feedback as feedback and not reinforcement of the imposter syndrome? Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting thing, that question about reinforcement of the imposter syndrome, because there's nothing worse than when someone actually tells you 
what's already the inner critic is telling you in your head. Oh, that's not, that is not great. So in addition to what I just talked about there, I think the other piece is looking for the real evidence. So in the webinar, we talked about looking for the real evidence as one of the tools to dealing with imposter syndrome. And on the whole, if you're thinking about imposter syndrome, looking for the real evidence is looking for the evidence of your skills, your qualifications, and your experiences, because the imposter syndrome, the inner critic, our brain is tends to look for the negative. And really, so when we look for the positive, we're actually just getting a more accurate point of view for most of us, particularly if you are experiencing imposter syndrome. But the same approach of looking for the real evidence goes with what feedback should I really take in? Or even for your own self, if you're saying like, oh my gosh, that presentation went terrible. I need to write it on my development plan. Then I need to improve my presentation skills. There's just, this is terrible. This is not good. Take a step back and say, what is the real evidence telling me? Am I getting, in addition to my own being hard on myself, which there's probably kinder ways to talk to yourself, but regardless of whether it's real or not, but at the same time, are you getting that feedback from multiple people, not just one, but multiple people that this is an area that it would be helpful for you to improve? And are the results, whatever the result you were looking for from that presentation or your presentations in general, are you getting that result or not? And if the answer is you're getting feedback from multiple people that you can, that you could improve this and you're not getting the results that you desire, that probably is an area that you either want to improve or partner up with someone else, approach it in a different way. But if your inner critic is telling you're terrible, you need to improve this, but everyone else is telling you, gosh, you did a great job up there and you're getting the results that you are looking for that's probably self-doubt, perfectionism, and imposter syndrome, some combination of that going on. And so that looking for the real evidence goes for this feedback piece as well, whether you're getting it from someone else or whether it's completely internal to you. Yeah. I love that of being able to tell the difference because sometimes it is really hard to tell the difference. And I find that so many people can't even hear positive feedback sometimes because they have such a strong internal critic. You're like, oh my gosh, you did an amazing job. And they're the first ones to say, oh no, it was horrible. So I love that just being able to listen, let it in, look for the evidence. And I like the idea of writing it down. So it's not just your mind processing, but okay, these people said this, these people said that. And then also, like you said, that have that growth mindset of that you can develop new skills. So if people are saying, oh yeah, your presentations could be better. That's just as a great challenge to take on. And it's not personal. It doesn't mean that you're yes. not good at your job or that it means that, oh, that's everyone can grow and develop. That's what life is about is constant learning, growing, developing. Yes. I love that the distinctions you make because they're subtle, but really powerful in that. So thank you. And I want to add on, I love that you brought up the positive feedback, the praise as well of the if we're experiencing imposter syndrome, part of the definition of imposter syndrome that I didn't bring up earlier is that you are not internalizing your successes. And so they're, you're not really, they're not really sinking in and becoming reality. And that's an internal process, but it also goes with those compliments that you might get on your work of what you just said of the automatic responses. Oh no, it wasn't that good. Or that's just what I do deflecting that praise that's coming in. And so if you, if that's common for you, just make it a practice to pause when you're getting that compliment. And even if you just say, thank you, train yourself to just say, thank you, instead of negating it, (laughs) Um, I think is a helpful first step and allow yourself for a moment to believe or try to believe or pretend to believe that it's actually true. 
Like that feedback, that positive feedback coming in is true. And it's like, Oh, four different people are telling me I really did a great job on this. And am I really essentially telling them that they're all liars by negating this feedback? Probably not. I probably don't actually think that they are liars in real life. So maybe they're actually telling me the truth and maybe I am good at this. Maybe I did a great job and maybe I can let myself believe that as well. Oh, absolutely. And I loved in the webinar how you talked about creating a kudos folder for yes. especially people like that of when people have said, hey, great job or sent you a really positive email just to remind yourself, because I think sometimes when you're feeling that it, the failure seems so much bigger than the successes. People in the chat really responded to that. They're like, I love that, a kudos folder. So I thought that was great. And then someone also asked this final question I'm going to ask you about imposter syndrome that I thought was so interesting. It's the question was if you're prone to imposter syndrome and the environment treats you like an intruder, is it more likely to spike your internal imposter syndrome monologue? The short answer to that is yes, absolutely. Mm. And this is why anyone can experience imposter syndrome. Absolutely anyone can. And I have talked to people of all genders, races, anyone can experience imposter syndrome. And it is more likely that people who are from underrepresented groups are either going to experience, there's some differing research. Some research says that they experience it more frequently. Other research says that the, everyone experiences it and the frequency is pretty, pretty similar, but that the experience of it is not the same. And I think that's where this question is getting to. If you are being treated as an intruder, like you don't belong, yes, that is going to spike your most likely going to spike your imposter syndrome, especially if it's something you are prone to already. And it makes sense if I think of my perspective as a woman and not every woman's perspective is different. I'm a white woman sitting here and I have the privilege of being a white woman. And we know that for example, there's feedback that's given to women and even different feedback that's given to specific groups. Like for example, in my corporate career, I definitely got some feedback, not all the time, but it absolutely happened that I could be too direct. And I have really reflected on this because over time, that feedback caused me to truly question myself. I wouldn't say in this instance that it caused a whole lot of specifically imposter syndrome, but it absolutely caused me to be overly cautious about how I was using my voice. Cause I was like, I don't want to, I don't get that feedback again. I don't want to hurt someone's feelings, all of these things like that because of this feedback that I got. When in reality, when I have looked back on that feedback and tried to be as objective as I possibly can, I do not think it ever would have been given to me had I been a man. Mm-hmm. Point blank. I think it would have either been ignored and considered a neutral trait or potentially even a positive trait of, oh, you're young and assertive and sharing your voice. And to be fair, some people agreed with that. Some people did think it was a positive that I was assertive and sharing my voice. And I also got criticism for being direct. And I will tell you, for example, as a white woman, I have gotten this feedback that I'm direct. I've never gotten the feedback that I am angry, which is something that a black woman is a lot more likely to have to deal with and is more is a harder thing with some more there's more judgment around anger than there is around being direct generally speaking and both of these feedbacks are based in bias they're based in bias that's out there and i really think we need to take apart and really look at a lot of that feedback that we give on style a lot of the expectations we're telling people of color women in general of how they're supposed to show up and really think if you're telling someone they need to have more executive presence, what does that mean? And get really clear on that. And is that based in a definition of how 
a white male was supposed to show up in 82. And is it not really hold true anymore? And I'm not going to say yes or no to every single one of those, because I think we still need to be giving feedback on behavior and style. And we need to expand the definition of what is considered professional and leadership and executive. And because of all of that is part, those are all things that can make you feel like an outsider or if everyone is invited to a meeting, but you're not invited to the meeting or to happy hour or all of those things can make you feel like you don't belong when you actually are absolutely smart enough, capable enough, have enough experience to be there. And there is a piece of this. And there's a really great article in Harvard Business Review called, there's two. So one is called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. And the second one, I may not get this title right, but it's I think it's called How to End Imposter Syndrome in the Workplace. It's by the same two authors. And it really dives into this cultural aspect of why do some people experience imposter syndrome more strongly and that it really isn't your fault. I do believe that we can do things about it for ourselves as well, which is a lot of the tools that I talked about in the webinar, because there are, there absolutely are things. I've worked on my own imposter syndrome. I've worked with other people, whether it's through webinars like this or coaching clients, and they have been able to quiet their own imposter syndrome, not make it disappear, but quiet it over time. And there is a bigger picture involved about why you are likely experiencing imposter syndrome in the first place. I'm glad you talked about that because in the mentees I interview, there are so many people that talk about the different playing rules for based on gender, based on race, based on whatever. And that's one of the things they want their mentor to help them navigate. So I really appreciate that, that just the acknowledgement that there are often different playing rules and that's something to be dismantled. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Heather, since I have you here, I have another question that's off topic of imposter syndrome, but I loved your book, An Overachiever's Guide to Breaking the Rules, How to Let Go of Perfect and Live Your Truth. It's got so many great tools in there of what you can do to address some of these big issues that we're talking about related to imposter syndrome or just in general of being an overachiever. So one of the many aha moments I had when I read your book related to the chapter on how to rediscover your creativity. Can you talk about how people oftentimes lose their creative confidence and give us some suggestions for how to rediscover your creativity? Absolutely. And I love that is one of your favorite chapters and it is for so many people. And I almost didn't put it in the book because oh, wow. I thought, yeah, I wondered, I was like, is this too off topic? Does it, I was like, for me, it felt important, but I was like, is this going to feel important to other people? Like rediscovering your creativity as a part of letting go of overdoing and overachieving. But clearly, clearly it was because I hear it all the time from people. Yes. My story is a big part of this is that, and it's very similar to so many people's stories in that I did not think I was creative for a really long time because I basically wasn't good at like seventh grade art class. I got fine grades, but I looked at what I was producing and I was like, this is not good. This does not look pretty. This does not look how it's supposed to look. And art became not fun because I felt like I was just terrible at it. And I took this definition of me, quote unquote, not being good at art into a broader definition of I'm just not creative at all. And I wanted to be like, I actively wanted to be creative. And let's throw out the window the fact that I always was a writer. I always wrote poems, even in high school. I was writing poems. I went to a young writers conference and somehow I didn't think I was creative, even though that was a part of my life. 
And it really took a manager who was the first one to open my eyes to my own creativity because I was talking in my corporate jobs. I had it written on my development plan that I wanted to be more creative, that I wanted to develop my creativity. And I remember one day I sat down with my manager and I was working on a lead, a global leadership development program at that time. And I had an idea for a totally new module that we could do for that program. And my manager just sat back and she was like, Heather, you're always saying how you want to be more creative. You just spouted off a whole new idea for a whole new approach to this leadership development program, a whole new module. This is creativity. And I was like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And so for me, I think, and this is part of what I think all of us can do is first just realizing that you really are creative and looking at creativity in a different way. That creativity isn't just about, can you paint a pretty picture, which I think a lot of us get that message, or even some people probably have a broader definition that might include writing or things like that. But even beyond any of these traditional, what we would deem creative fields, Creativity shows up in every single part of our lives. It shows up in problem solving. It shows up in telling a story with data. It shows up in so many ways. So I think part of rediscovering your creativity is rediscovering that you are already creative and that we just need to flip around our definition and realize some of those messages that you might've gotten as a kid, whether directly to you or indirectly about what creativity means. And then as a step deeper of really reigniting that creativity is to do some things that are just fun, that feel like you're curious about them and letting go of the outcome. So this is not about making it look pretty. It's really about the process. And I remember when I still lived in Minneapolis, right before the pandemic hit, a company opened up that still exists because I looked on the website before jumping on here because I wanted to make sure if I said about them that it still existed. It's called Curiosity Studio. And a few artists started this these classes that are really all about the process and not the outcome. And I went to one event where we had stations around a room. One of them we had to color with a blindfold on. Another one we were painting on a big sheet of paper and we could use anything. There were no brushes and we could use any body part except for our fingers and our hands. So I like painted a whole picture with my elbow and it was so fun because it was just about being in the moment, following curiosity, following fun, following what felt good. And how often do we do that in our lives in general? Just follow what feels good and fun and what you're curious about. And that can really reignite creativity if we can let go of the outcome and just be in the process of it all. Oh, I love that. That is great advice. And I've been doing some of the practices from your book and they really do work. And re-examining some of those messages we take on when we're little, like you said, if you're not good at drawing a picture in seventh grade, you think, oh, I'm not creative. I think those are, that's just great ideas. So Heather, we have time for three final questions. All right. Um, the first one is, do you have habits or practices that you feel have contributed to your success? Yes. And most of them are probably not the traditional things that you would think of. So one is that sleep is literally the number one priority in my life. And I did not, that was not true for a really long time. I was pretty much burned out and overcommitted and not sleeping for, I don't know, 25 years of my life. I was always a pretty good sleeper. Like I didn't have serious insomnia, but I just didn't sleep enough. And I've always been someone who needs a lot of sleep. And when I finally made sleep the number one priority in my life, my entire life changed because I just felt better all the time. Now, does this mean that I sleep well every single night or that I'm never tired? 
no, absolutely not. I go through stressful periods where I do wake up in the middle of the night or where I've taken on a little too much or where I choose to stay out late because something fun is going on and then I'm tired the next day and it all balances out. But that has been a huge one for me. Another piece is getting outside and hiking and really just creating space for myself and to hear hear my own internal voice and to do things to reconnect to that and remind myself that I don't have to take in all the messages that I get around me, that all the rules, I call these the rules, like these rules that I was taught, some of which for many years and still sometimes show up that lead me to the overdoing, the perfectionism, like they still show up. I'm still dismantling those. And I also know that when I can really listen to my own, my own knowing that I'm able to let go of those rules a lot faster that, that, and that also reminding myself that every time I listen to my own knowing good things happen. It's when I don't listen to it, that either, whether it's in work or my life as a whole, that I don't make great decisions or they just don't have the outcome that I'm looking for. Even if they are quote unquote, the right thing to do or what you're supposed to do to experience success. I typically haven't experienced at least not my own version of success when I followed what other people with the messages that I've gotten of what success is supposed to be like. So all of those practices, hiking, resting, quiet time, journaling, all of those things are what allows me to reconnect into myself. Oh, I love that. I love like the integration of those practices. And thank you for calling out sleep specifically. I think that is just one of the biggest issues people have is that chronic sleep deprivation. And like you said, you start getting enough sleep, you feel like a different person and so many things come together. I had a, a college professor that would tell us almost every time he said, best thing you can do for your grades is get enough sleep. And I remember that so vividly. I was like, oh my gosh, it's like an easy thing to do that makes such a big difference. Yes. So Heather, what would your advice be to up and coming leaders? Yeah, it goes along a bit with that intuition piece was mm-hmm. it is great to get perspectives from other people. It is great feedback, despite everything we just said about feedback. Feedback is also important. Like part, sometimes you get feedback that is life-changing, that opens up your world, that makes you change it for a very positive way. And people can open doors, like your mentor can open doors of things you never thought about. Like all of that is very real. So step one is take in, take it all in. But then step two is to turn inward and say, what is really true and right for me? And I think so often I can think back in my corporate career of times when I was like, I should do that thing. That would be quote unquote good for my career. And in some ways it was, but after doing it, I was like, I can't, that didn't, that was not what I really wanted to do. That didn't, that was not where my passions were. That was not where my zone of genius lay, whatever we want to call that. And really I needed to take in this feedback from people and other perspectives and I had great managers on the whole as well. I say like people who cared about me, who were giving me really positive intentioned direction. And I still needed to take that step back and say, okay, what actually is going to work for me? So that combination, take it in, but then go inward. I love that. And then the final question, Heather, do you have a favorite saying, quote, or motto? There's a lot. I love quotes. (laughs) I think one that has stuck with me for a really long time though, comes from Howard Thurman. And I may not get the wording perfectly, but it goes something like, do not ask what the world may need. Instead, ask what makes you come alive and go do that. 
because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. Woo, that is great. That's a good note to end on, Heather. I love that. I'll be thinking about that. That's so true. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Heather. I really appreciate you taking the time to answer the questions from the webinar participants. Your work has really helped to normalize imposter syndrome as something most people experience at some point in their career. Thank you for offering such practical tools for recognizing and dealing with imposter syndrome or learning to set boundaries or figuring out your own internal voice. If you haven't read Heather's book, An Overachiever's Guide to Breaking the Rules, How to Let Go of Perfect and Live Your Truth, I highly recommend it. The book is full of specific things you can do to reconnect to yourself. Also, you can tune into Heather's podcast, Create Your Own Rules for Life, which is streaming on all platforms. And to learn more about hiring Heather as a speaker for your organization, please visit her website, heatherwelpley.com. Thank you all for listening to this Mentium Matters podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. We look forward to having you back for our next episode.